This is episode 17, part one, Design for Resilience. In this two-part series, I spoke with Stephen Bao about the design of human experiences and the power designers have to impact the world around them. Stephen is a mentor at Design Lab and a member of the Design Science Studio, who explores R. Buckminster Fuller's principles of design science. We discussed the Bauhaus, the early days of the internet, and what happens when good designers do bad things. His new podcast, Design for Resilience, comes out soon. Please enjoy our conversation. I'm Stephen Levitt, and this is the Language of Creativity Podcast. Stephen, it's nice to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really inspired by your work. Just full disclosure, I did not know the Buckminster Fuller Institute existed, but I'm like into that kind of thought. The idea that the future is something we design for. It's something we choose. And the way that the ideas have been around for a while to think about problem solving in a more coherent way than we tend to in our current iteration of society. But I know that that's not the only thing that you're involved with. So the first way I wanted to introduce you is you are a user interface designer. Something like that. Yeah. You couldn't actually call me a user experience designer because no one has ever actually given me that official title. <laughs> but I have been a designer within an agency where we were working on web applications and websites and that sort of thing. And whatever they're training people for these days for UX design is pretty much what I was doing without the research. And you currently are training students in that field. Is that correct? That's correct. So that's where I come in as someone who's had 30 plus years of experience as a designer and can speak to a lot of the pieces of the process that students are involved in with it's a program called UX Academy that's being run by Design Lab. So what I do is I run one hour sessions with each of the students that I'm working with, giving feedback and critique on their projects as they're going through the program of trying to figure out how do I make a career switch from maybe marketing or product management to actually becoming a UX designer. It's a really interesting place to be where I'm helping guide that transition from sometimes people not knowing anything about design, but having a little bit of experience and then wanting to, okay, maybe I take my psychology degree and then apply those skills into a creative area where people are wondering, well, I feel like I have a creative bent to me, but can I actually make a career out of this? Well, mentorship is so important because when you're starting out and you have maybe a bent towards something or maybe you don't know, a lot of times it's the soft things that you learn from a mentor that really shape your trajectory. And so you might learn a skill like design or photography, but the mentors and the people in your life who teach you about people skills, who teach you about ethics, who teach you about 
self-management, these things that you don't even sometimes even know you're learning, it can be so influential to the outcome of an individual. Yeah, exactly. Well, a lot of what you don't learn in design school is how to be a designer for the long term. And that means so many other things other than just learning the skills. And so when I went to design school, it was to learn about graphic design. And a lot of what we learned was just hands-on figuring out the materials and the processes and the tools that we were using. And there was a little bit of business writing and maybe figuring out how to price your work or wonder, like, how do you make money doing this kind of skill? But that's a very small piece of actually, what does it mean to be a designer that is figuring out how to manage a career for the span of a lifetime? And that's unusual, probably for me. I started when I was maybe 12 in art school going, I think I'm going to be a graphic artist or a commercial artist, is what they call them then. So I just started playing with stuff in high school. And it was just very experimental in just learning the tools. But what you don't learn is once you get into the industry, it's where do you want to take your career? And I was wondering, do I go to university and learn more about communications? Or do I take a business administration course? Like there's so many things that I don't know. And I was learning the hard way by just jumping into things from being at a small boutique design studio in Vancouver, learning how everything that I'd figured out in high school and college was doing everything by hand. And that was in the age of the digital revolution as we were just taking on Macintoshes and then applying that to completely transforming our production process from mechanical to completely digital. So that just happened within a couple of years. And then I decided, well, I'm just going to buy my own computer and then figure this out. And then you learn on the fly, like running a business is way different than just doing design all day. Did I hear you correctly that you started at 12? So I'm just talking about my trajectory as an artist and designer. I guess I was probably drawing as soon as I could put a crayon to paper. But I think when I was in junior high, that was when I was deciding, well, what am I going to do? And I just happened to be one of the few people who was actually applying effort to the process of making art and winning awards because no one else was trying. <laughs> so wow. that became a way of going, okay, well, I'm getting validation from this. So maybe I should run with this. Yeah. Well, you and I have that in common because yeah. I started getting really serious about music and recording hmm. when I was 11 or 12. And okay. so I had kind of plinked the piano from the age of between five and eight. And then it really got serious at 12. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. I was recording and I had a computer <laughs> with a sequencer on it. Right. And it was kind of the same thing. I mean, it was just I applied myself over a long time. So even though I was younger, I was able to say, well, I have 20 years of music experience, like pretty early on. Yeah. But the people who shaped me the most were the people who I was able to like, oh, I need to meet somebody who does this for a living, like someone who has a real studio. And I think my young adult life was a series of finding those people <laughs> so I could right. be a sponge yeah. and absorb everything. 
Yeah. I had that opportunity when I was in high school. There was someone who was in our neighborhood and she was doing design work and illustration. And yeah, this is taking me way back. And then I also had this opportunity to meet a family friend who happened to be an illustrator. And so I got to visit their studio and see what it looked like to be an illustrator. But even those little vignettes, it was just like one day things that gave me a little sense of, okay, this is what it could look like. But then as soon as I got into the industry, I quickly discovered that things change very quickly. Especially at that time. Yeah, especially when the world was making that huge transition. And I was watching people basically lose their jobs because the roles were very specialized. You were just a typesetter. I mean, not just a typesetter, but but you had very specialized roles within the whole production mm-hmm. chain. And those roles just completely got wiped away because the computer just made things so much easier to do all of those things mm-hmm. as a single operator. But that also meant as a designer, you had to learn so much more about how everything worked. And right. <laughs> at the beginning, I was reading a lot of software manuals late mm-hmm. at night while I had the keys and the code to the building. No one else was there, but I was just, all right, I got to figure this stuff out. Otherwise, I'm going to be left behind as well. Yeah, it was the same in music. There was a period between, I think, 1997, 98 to about 2003, where studios were quickly like, everyone was getting rid of their tape machines and the workflows were changing. Everyone had to learn software. Pro Tools eventually took over. But it was funny because... Hip hop was kind of ahead of the curve on that because they were working with samplers and sequencers and things early on. And then it sort of started to take over into pop and rock and all those other things. And so not just with the Napster era, which was also a huge disruption to the music industry, there was also the home studio revolution. So you started to be able to do more on a computer and it does parallel design a lot desktop publishing was hugely disruptive. Yeah, totally. And we were trying to, as professional designers, figure out how do we make a distinction between ourselves as professional designers from what was being called desktop publishing at the time. So it has been a kind of constant arms race against the commoditization of whatever our professional value has been. So when I was working at an agency, it was even the production managers were realizing, well, we can outsource this work to India for a fraction of the cost. So I was doing front-end development at that point. And then I was realizing, well, they're outsourcing my role. (laughs) So what do I do now? So front-end being what I see as the end user. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I worked with Wendy, Wendy Vanguard, from a few episodes back. Thank you for right. sharing her episode on your blog, by the way. It's now our most downloaded episode. Oh, nice. But I remember when I was working with Wendy, we were doing design in Quark Express, which was basically mm-hmm. a precursor to Adobe, Adobe InDesign. InDesign. Yeah. yeah. Now they've developed InDesign and Quark Express to do dynamic resizes from content. And you had to realize that computers, as they were evolving, there were all these different screen sizes. 
And you could never really predict what size screen someone would have. And nowadays, with everything going mobile, you have to design a website experience to both work on a larger screen, like a iMac or a MacBook Pro or whatever, versus like an iPhone or an Android. And that experience is vastly different in terms of practicality of how big your boxes can be and where things can go and how people ingest that information, just how brains work. Now, like the software is doing a lot of those changes dynamically. And so you're almost, as a designer, thinking more like a software engineer. If they're on this screen, then this should happen. And if they're on that screen, then that should happen. So has it been interesting kind of blending those two modes of thinking? Because I know that most designers are more visual touch type people. And it's like you got a canvas and that canvas is what is influencing your decisions artistically. But when you're dealing with web design, you're dealing with a canvas that's changing. How do you work with that? So we use a technique called responsive web design. So it was around 2010 that the World Wide Web Consortium added something called media queries, which then allowed something that was popularized as responsive web design, which basically allows your design to be able to adapt to different screen sizes in a lot of different ways so that you're using what's called CSS or cascading style sheets to be able to modify the presentation of your content according to whatever the device is saying. This is the size of the screen. So basically, we'll have it respond to the different widths or sizes of the screen in different ways. Yeah, so that was really revolutionary. Because before that, we were just designing according to, well, the standard screen sizes seem to be this size, they keep on growing a little bit. So we'll scale up from maybe an 800 by 600 screen to something like 1024 by 768 screen. So then maybe we use this 960 grid system to kind of fit into that. So everything was fixed to a particular width. And right. designers were always, from my point of view anyway, ignoring the engineers and just taking whatever skills they had in graphic design and then reapplying that to different screen sizes, not realizing that every time they were trying to manipulate the medium to conform to their expectations, they were actually breaking the way the web worked. (laughs) So (laughs) it's been a constant learning process or unlearning process from the beginning of the internet to even now we're discovering that you can choose a certain approach to working with technology and then you have all these unintended consequences as a result. Mm -hmm. So what I've discovered over 30 years of working as a designer is being very, very aware of what could possibly go wrong. And so I've come up with a concept of design for resilience. So built into that process is a recognition that things will go wrong and you want to think ahead about what could go wrong and plan for it. Right. Otherwise, you might get into a situation where someone's going to make a documentary called The Social Dilemma and then... Yes, The Social (laughs) Dilemma. I so want to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. So here we are recognizing that when you go to design school, you don't learn anything about psychology well, you, you might learn a little bit um, about what people's motivations are so that you can create advertising that 
appeals to people's motivations, but we don't do a really deep dive into those kinds of areas. Right. And now that we're delving deeper into cognitive science, we're recognizing that we have built an entire industry that is trying to tap into people's brain stems and trigger their fears so that they keep in lockstep with the consumer culture that's basically funding everything. <laughs> I want to rewind a little bit because this is a deep topic that I want to go really deep on. So I want to okay. give people a little bit of background. So first of all, when the web came out, it was almost like the absence of design because web pages used to be simply documents with interlinkability. So hyperlinks, you know, you're reading a document and you see a footnote and you're like, oh, I want to explore that. So it would take you from here to there. And it was a way to sort of network documents and information. So like a library, like from, I mean, the 70s, 80s, early 90s, right? Right. So if you think about the history of the internet, where it comes from Basically, the military was trying to figure out how to link up their defense systems so that they could be able to communicate with each other across large distances if there was any attack on the country. So they wanted to have some sort of way of being able to send messages through digital systems. And eventually, things get a little calmer through the Cold War. So you know, maybe there's other uses for this technology. And so it became something that was connected to what education institutions were trying to do. So right. they wanted to do some research and then share that research with each other. So it became more of a way of connecting people who were very technical or engineers with each other so that they could play around with these technologies and imagine, well, what could we do with this? But, right. And it turned out to be very democratizing in the beginning because people were right. able to connect with each other over distance and magnetize around interests and research and ideas. And it brought more and more narrow groups of focus together. Maybe they didn't coexist in the same area, the same city, the same country. But mm -hmm. all of a sudden you could band together around ideas and form a little community. And that's actually how open source software programming came about. So all these different forms of social architecture started to emerge because of this property of the internet being something that you could connect with other minds over distance in a virtual space, right? Right. So if you think back into the mythology of computers and how when Tron came out originally, it was about the centralization. You know, the central processing unit was actually the villain. <laughs> it was like the authoritarian archetype. Right. So they're mapping the kinds of corporate military authorities in contrast to the open source, open data kind of societies of educational or science-oriented cultures, where it's more about how do we collaborate together to effectively make sense of the world and share as much as we can with each other so we have a better idea of what's actually happening. Whereas if you have a centralized authority, it's all about command and control and making sure that everyone's conforming to a certain standard of behavior or an orthodoxy of knowledge. So right. 
And so the internet evolves, people start using it more and more, and what happens? So over time, people are recognizing that this is not just the domain of geeks and and academics engineers but that there could be some economic potential here and so there was a kind of gold rush to figure out well how can we make money out of this and as the medium became more and more popular and people were discovering oh there's email there's bulletin boards there's gaming there's all these different things that you can be doing on the network And it was just amazing to be able to have that kind of access to information, but also connection to these social spaces that had never existed before. Mm. So, yeah, what you're talking about is the democratization of a medium that was meant originally for connecting control centers. And now, inadvertently, they've unleashed the ability to create a kind of democratized space where people can experiment and communicate and compare experiences with each other. So that became just a revolution in the way that we think about technology as not just the tools of industry or the production capacities of the elite, but it now is a democratizing force in the world where you still have to have the ability to access that. So it's not completely democratizing because you, right. you do have to have a certain amount of money or just awareness of how you can access those sorts of technologies. But it's started to shift the way things were working. But over time, you know, once corporations and organizations discover that this can also be used as a way to broadcast information much easier when browsers were being created, Netscape and Internet Explorer, there was a browser war basically about, well, who was going to be able to control how this interface was going to be able to work. Oh, right. And yeah, things were pretty ugly and very experimental at the beginning. And in some cases, the breakthrough was, well... If we can imitate the kind of designs that are happening in print, then maybe this medium can start to have a little bit more cachet. And that's when we started breaking things out into tables of images that were replicating the same kind of look as maybe a magazine or a newspaper page. Right. Where information could be served up in a particular way. Right. So (laughs) I remember web design with tables. I was a web designer for a minute in the early 2000s. (laughs) And it was a problem. Like how to, how do you display images side by side? How do you get things like, and sounds like tables. And then, you know, I started designing with tables and I was like, no one's using tables anymore. Everyone's CSS. That's when I'm like, I forget it. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first iteration of when designers you know, ruin things as they come along and go, it should look exactly like what we're used to in print design. So we're just going to take that old medium and then just stick it on a screen and then we're done, right? But what we ended up doing was dividing everything up into tiny little chunks of images and the actual text of the page was no longer really legible Mm -hmm. in some areas. So 
Well, with the goal of creating a certain outcome, what I wanted to bring up was, let's not forget in the history of things that like in the 80s, 90s, during this time of disruption, the media landscape was very particular. It was like television, which we all watched a ton of. The, the blockbuster video store where you go watch movies, right? Or right. the theater and the nightly news and few people still read the newspaper, but in the radio, I mean, for the most part, it, the media landscape at that point was very controlled for lack of a better word. I mean, it right. was corporate. I mean, you needed yeah. a lot of money and technology to deliver a message. And we were all very accustomed to messaging coming at us in a one way direction. Right. And so that was the internet was like, all of a sudden you have this two-way and horizontal (laughs) iteration of like, I can put something up and now a hundred people, a thousand people could read it. Right. And that was not something that ever existed in mass media before. So yeah, that was such a change from, well, what I grew up with was maybe three major networks and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC. (laughs) So those were our channels. That really said a lot about how the broadcast media were either controlled by corporations or by the government. And as soon as you had the internet, then there was a realization that this could change everything if everyone has the ability to create their own channel effectively or create their own website or their own newsletter or their own audience through email newsletters, then... Or weblog. <laughs> Weblogs, yeah, right. A blog. <laughs> yeah, bulletin board yeah. services. There were, there were so many <laughs> different ways that they were experimenting with. You mean you can communicate in real time through text? Right. Through some sort of text relay service. Text messaging became, you know, the thing. So, yeah. (laughs) I remember my first cell phone. I probably had like 16 unread text messages. I didn't know it had text messages. It was a little (laughs) clamshell phone. And I'm like, what is this little mailbox thing? I check my voicemails. I don't see anything. Like, Yeah. 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 It's amazing how everything that we were doing at that first design studio was getting everything that we were creating was being sent off to clients through a fax machine. And then we were making sure that when everything came back, they were signing off on all the design proofs. So we had to have a signature on everything before anything went out the door because you can't make changes once it's printed. Right. And when the internet comes along and, oh, you can just put up a website and you don't really care so much or you're not proofreading as carefully maybe because you're trying to do things very quickly. And so if there was a mistake, oh, someone can tell you about it and then you make the change and you're done. Revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. Like People don't realize how much effort that saves and how much headache and having been somebody who has had something sent to press wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And the amount of financial damage that caused, Mm -hmm. it's hard to understate. It's hard to estimate now in today's media market because it's just, yeah, you know, okay, just change it. But, you know, the flip side of that, the dark side of that is, is something can change underneath your nose and you don't even know that it was changed. (laughs) Yeah, true. 
<laughs> so, I mean, to digress a second back into the idea of marketing, right? Because that's what most graphic designers are doing is this kind of like madmen, right? You know, there's, right. there's TV commercials, there's newspaper ads, there's magazine ads, and then there's television radio ads and things like that. Smart people are designing for how to maximize attention and how to get people to buy something. Mm -hmm. And so I would say the majority of people who go into graphic design are going into a form of advertising. Not everybody. Some people go into product design. Some people go into fine art. Some people do different things. But if you're doing design, it tends to be a more commercial enterprise just by its own nature. There's something that you are trying to create for someone to experience in a way that makes them either know more about it or do something. And so I want to speak to that because it's not like the internet has brought anything particularly new in that arena. Somehow design on its core is a large part of the profession, I would say, has become that. So can you talk about that for a minute? So yeah, what I'm thinking right away as you're describing that is that any medium tends to be an extension of what is already happening within a society. So yeah, it does depend on the context where if you were taking a look at media and how they're being used in China or in, I'm thinking around the time of the Cultural Revolution or in Russia during the Cold War, then mostly what you're doing is creating propaganda for the state. So within a Western democratic context, then especially in then a we're creating corporate setting, yeah, <laughs> everything is built to support the machinery that's driving that society. So yeah. Which in our case is the economy. So right, right. Yeah. Exactly. So what you have after the end of World War II is the realization that we've actually made economic gains because of the war, because we've had to basically retool all our industries to build weapons of war. And so you weren't building as many cars unless they were Jeeps or tanks or whatever. Right. But then after the war, well, now you've got all this wealth and then you're investing in reimagining, well, what could your cities look like? And this is where maybe the Bauhaus comes in, this social utopian idea that comes out of the ruins of Germany in World War I and then gets shut down by the Nazis so that eventually they spread those ideas of modern industrial design around the world. But they were taking ideas from the way Ford was thinking about the production line in a factory and then thinking, well, can we do the same thing to rebuild our cities if we apply the same kinds of technology to building homes? And so if you're in a social utopian experiment where you're trying to figure out what are the best ways to build efficiently and inexpensively, then what you come up with is, well, why don't we build with steel, glass, and concrete? And right. when you export that as a kind of international style of modern design, and then it gets co-opted by an American corporate economy that just wants to build bigger and higher in downtown central cores, what you end up 
having is all the prime real estate of the city is taken up by the corporations in the downtown cores. And people then need to feel like that's not a place that I want to live. That feels really oppressive. So we're going to escape to the suburbs. And then what happens is because you have a society that is built on segregation of races then and the segregation between classes, then there's a bifurcation of the entire society based on where you live. So you've got suburbs and then you've got the downtown cores that people are trying to escape from. And interestingly, things have kind of reversed now where the place to be is in the cities. So you're starting to see more, um, or it's been in process for a long time, the gentrification of the downtown cores so that now people don't want to have to get stuck in traffic. It's not like it used to be where (laughs) you had these freeways that could take you anywhere, but now they're just places where you get stuck. And if you're stuck in the suburbs, then you're wasting your time in your commutes where the the better place to be is actually where you can live and work and right right in the downtown cores. Well, the values of people... It's funny how it shifts. I think I saw an exhibit at the Cleveland Science Museum that was talking about suburbanization. And they said there's a cycle where literally that happens. The cities spring up. Everybody moves there for the economic opportunities. And then they get some means and they realize, oh, yeah, it's kind of crowded here. So they do. They The automobile comes and they move out to the suburbs. And then it's like the suburbs eventually sort of like urbanize too much or get too crowded or whatever. And then basically... The bands move out so far that people end up re-inhabiting the cities and revitalizing the cities. It's almost like the city in the middle dies and then it comes back 30 years later, 35, 40 years later, something like that. It's a cycle and they observed it. I'm really a fan of the idea that people have reclaimed parts of Detroit using urban farming. And I think it's interesting because, you know, talking about ideas and how they spread, one of the things that I remember talking to you about in a conversation about the Bauhaus was you said, okay, skyscrapers came out of the Bauhaus movement. And originally when those were designed, they were designed to have a lot more greenery around them and a lot more space between the buildings and to work with the sunlight and the environment a lot more than they ended up doing in our modern version of the city. Yeah, The original ideas that were coming out of the Bauhaus, Gropius was involved in some early architecture competitions where he was exploring these steel, glass, and concrete boxes that would tower into the sky. But he wasn't the originator of the concept of the skyscraper, but the modern iteration of it very much is influenced by that kind of international style of architecture. But you could probably go back to Lewis Sullivan in the States where they were experimenting with the form but not really getting the exact kind of maybe the modern aesthetic that we're much more used to associating with the form of a skyscraper. The older versions might have had still brick and exteriors with smaller window openings, but when you start using curtain walls of glass that are reminiscent of the really revolutionary models that Walter Gropius was creating in Dessau in Germany, 
well, now you have a more modern looking structure that is actually taking the weight of the building off of the exterior glass facade and then cantilevering those exterior walls out. So that was the revolutionary piece that Volta Gropius mm. brought to the form of skyscrapers because now the structural supports are actually, in a way, brought inside the building a little bit more so that it feels like the exterior glass surface is just a weightless kind of piece that's floating there. And it, it just creates that sort of illusion of weightlessness and that's usually what's associated with that kind of urban monumental architecture based on mm -hmm. modernism, yeah. Well, the design follows the function, so it's a matter of playing with this idea of beauty and aesthetic and working with the practicality of the medium. Yeah, well, as it turns out, steel, glass, and concrete are great for creating those modern forms, but not really great for modulating the interior environment of those spaces right so you know if winter and summer weather systems are beating against your building you're either amplifying the heat or not getting enough heat mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because it's being dispersed very quickly through the glass so it actually has maybe caused a lot more problems than it's solved just by focusing too much on the form and less on the function right I'd love to tangent on that. And so I think I'll come <laughs> yeah. back to it later. But I think the other thing that we've talked about is sort of the way that design comes about based on the prevailing... The ethos. The, the ethos the of your of society. Age, yeah. yeah, the spirit yeah. of the age. Right. So exactly like airline seats. When airlines started, it was this huge... Everyone's like, oh, you get to go on an airline. And it was the most luxurious experience possible. All the seats, you look at pictures in old catalogs and the seats were like miles apart. Mm -hmm. And now airlines are packed in like sardine cans and it's like every five years they get smaller <laughs> and it's just like suburban housing and my community, it's very suburban and I've watched the houses like they put up these five, six, seven hundred thousand dollar houses in these communities and they're literally like 12 feet apart. And they have no yards, but maybe they're 1,800 square feet inside. And you're just going, wait, but there's all this surrounding area. And why are they designing without any regard for nature or human movement or freedom? It was so irritating to me because I'm like, okay, so now housing is becoming like airline seats with no other motivation other than we can maximize the price per square foot. Right. So it becomes a factor of where are you going to place your value in the commodity that you're selling or the activity that you're engaged in. When economics is the driving factor in how we think of value, then it actually deforms the way you think about how to be human. <laughs> so when... That's a provocative statement. Well, yeah. And I do tend to be fairly provocative if you see anything that I'm posting on Twitter. Um, in my long-form writing, I'm probably going to be way more nuanced and thoughtful in the way I'm trying to convey some ideas. But even then, I get a little polemic. 
But what I'm trying to do is, when I went to college, we were a bunch of eclectic artists gathered together to, you know, some were just there because they knew, yeah, I can make money in this business. And others are like, I'm an artist and I want to make revolutionary posters or just fun expressions of design that really are more about how can I express my style through modern forms of media. But when it comes to, yeah, you've got an entire society that is oriented towards turning humans into consumers. And we were just listening to a woman named Lynn Twist earlier this week, who was part of something called The Hunger Project. And it came out Mm. of Bucky Fuller's ideas in connection with another man named Werner Erhard. And so what Bucky was trying to do was take a look at everything that had been produced through the means of retooling everything for creating weapons. And then thinking about, well, we're not in a place where we actually need to use those weapons anymore. Why don't we actually shift our attention more towards creating, instead of weaponry, why not livingry? Right. <laughs> Things that are making life better for the whole world. And at the time, they were recognizing that people are starving to death. And if we can't actually meet the basic human needs of people around the world, when we have the means to do that, then why are we spending so much time on selling more and more things at a higher price for smaller and <laughs> smaller Return. Returns, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Buckminster Fuller is known for saying, it is now highly feasible to take care of everyone on earth at a higher standard of living than any have ever known. It no longer has to be you or me. Selfishness is unnecessary and henceforth unrationalizable as mandated by survival. So basically, what Hunger Project is saying is, is let's take some of this ingenuity and apply it towards solving hunger. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I do come from a very religious Christian background where that's one of the main tenets of that faith is being able to turn swords into plowshares was the what represents the utopia or the heaven that we're looking forward to and right the way i look at what bucky was trying to do that's essentially the idea is well maybe we had to go through this process of it's not either one or the other it's not competition or cooperation. It's actually that somehow we got here because we were trying to kill each other, (laughs) but inadvertently created these tools that allow us to be able to make the world better as well. So we always have this choice about how we're going to use our tools, whether it's, oh, we learned how to use and build steel implements. Do we use them to shoot projectiles at each other? Or do we use that to support buildings? And right. there's always the, the technology has often been said to be neutral. It's just in the way that you use it. But Marshall McLuhan would have 
balked at that idea and said, no, every technology actually has its own bias. So mm. whenever you take any sort of technology, that becomes an extension of who you are. So just be careful about taking on those technologies because if you haven't worked on who you are to become a more centered, mindful, compassionate, loving person, then you might actually just take those technologies and become an even worse monster than you already are. So in the same way that you can win a lottery and the extra money just amplifies who you already are to the nth degree, you do the same thing with technology. But also, Marshall McLuhan was also saying, you can use a shovel to dig a hole much bigger, but what you lose in that process is you've numbed your senses to what kind of damage you are doing to the earth. So if, for example, Mm. you're implementing a plow to dig up the earth, what you don't know is that there are mycelia structure in the earth that have been developed over hundreds of years to help the the forests and the life of the the plants are actually being supported because they are communicating through that network. Yes. There's a great podcast, um, Tim Ferriss interviews uh, Paul Stamets, who researches mycelium, and they're absolutely amazing fungus that do amazing things. Yeah, well, that that's what we're discovering now is that we're wondering why the topsoil of the earth is being depleted so quickly. What we hadn't recognized was that over a thousand plus years, you know, going as far back as we've been using agricultural technology, we've been destroying the topsoil by destroying that mycelia network that actually and the health of the soil, all of those organisms there actually depend on the rich ecosystem that is being created there through the life and death of all the organisms that have contributed to absorbing the energy of the sun and then reconverting that into rich, healthy soil and the seeds and, and information that you need to be able to create a thriving ecosystem. But when we create monocultures that are conforming to what humans expect to to be able to get out of the land, what we're not recognizing is that we're creating a kind of ecological holocaust every time we put Hmm. a plow into the ground. Well, you know, I find it so interesting that in the Bible, there is a command to let the soil lie fallow every seven years. And so even ancient cultures who are just developing agrarian abilities recognized that there was time needed for the land to, I mean, in essence, to Sabbath, you know, to rest. And what they didn't know scientifically is that that allows the land to regrow these structures that you're talking about. So that's what I'm hearing is that when we start to think about, well, what other kinds of communication might be going on that we're just unaware of, there is a film that came out earlier this year 
about the life and ideas of David Bohm. It's called Infinite Potential. So essentially what this is talking about is a man who was a mathematician and a physicist who was exploring quantum mechanics and special relativity, trying to figure out, well, how do these two theories that seem to be something that they don't really fit together neatly with each other. One is covering everything in the subatomic world, and then the other theory is in relation to larger scales at the scale of the universe. Right. So then... Planetary gravity, stars. Right, right. So it's space-time on one end, but then it's this strange kind of quantum world where there's this double slit experiment that seems to indicate that, well, light can be either a particle or a wave, depending on whether you're observing it or not. Right. And so there, there's these strange things that are happening that at these different scales, at least according to the scientific theories and predictions that can't be put together and if you try to combine those two theories. And, and what he was doing was actually coming up with ways of thinking about the quantum mechanics at the universal scale. So I don't know the mathematics or anything behind it, but essentially what he was doing was recognizing, well, I've been working with Einstein and with Robert Oppenheimer in the Manhattan experiment to come up with the hydrogen bomb. But in actuality, he wasn't allowed the security clearance to be able to participate in the Manhattan Project to any significant degree other than they were using his ideas and theories to actually move the project forward. But he himself was blacklisted because he happened to have gone to a meeting of communists and it was on record that he paid money to be there. (laughs) But he Mm. was just there to learn if anyone knew anything about Hegel. (laughs) <laughs> and wanted to talk about philosophy with some people who might be, uh, you know, conversant in that. And what he discovered was, oh, there was no one there. So uh, he didn't <laughs> go back. <laughs> but wow. for, that, for that reason, he was blacklisted from being able to participate in the scientific community in America. So he just had to go somewhere else and, wow. and try to figure out what he was going to do with his career. So he ended up talking with Krishnamurti going on a very spiritual journey where he was recognizing there's a lot of similarities with what Krishnamurti is talking about that actually have to do with, you know, the observer being the observed. Mm -hmm. Um, Recognizing this phrase in Krishnamurti's work and discovering, well, maybe there's some resonance between what has been regarded as two opposing views or cosmologies of the world, the world of science and the world of faith or spirituality. Right. So what he was drawing conclusions from those conversations that he was having with Krishnamurti was, well, there's an interconnection with all of these things. And we have in Mm. the scientific community a tendency to reduce everything to their parts and not recognize the holes. Right. This is 
the principle that Buckminster Fuller was speaking to in the concept of synergy is that the parts of the whole say nothing about what could possibly happen with the interconnection of those parts. Yes. And so because we have this kind of bias uh, across our education system and our ways of working in distinct disciplines and specialized fields, that is actually cutting off our ability to understand how everything works. And if we recognized how quantum mechanics is connected to the theory of special relativity in some very amazing ways, then we could even postulate that the universe has the ability to communicate across huge scales of time at the quantum level. Right. But we just happen to not be able to sense that or have any apparatus to recognize that that's actually happening. So Mm -hmm. it's a theory that is not proven to any degree, but we also have to think about, well, how much do we not know (laughs) Mm -hmm. about the universe that we're in. Well, I want to speak to the idea of, like, for example, quantum entanglement. Mm. This is a real thing that is postulated within quantum physics, as you're talking about, and people are using it for computing. So the idea that two particles can become entangled over a distance so that if you influence one particle in one space, it doesn't matter how far away, the other particle will react in kind to the movement of that first particle. So um, this has implications in cryptography and also into communications and basically breaks every known law of physics, i.e. the speed of light, um, that you could imaginably do some pretty funky things (laughs) with this knowledge. Um, And like you said, this is something that we wouldn't have considered if we were looking through a certain mindset. And it's only as we're exploring these things that mathematically maybe have some certitude, but don't make any sense on the human scale of size in the Newtonian laws of the world, you know, and they only make sense when you're looking at the very, very, very small. But it's it's almost like, how does this work? We don't know. <laughs> exactly, right? So now we get to the whole conundrum of how do we understand human experience? And this brings us back to the discussion of design around what we're calling UX design, which is a term that we're using in the industry to refer to user experience design. So right away, we're assuming that people are users of products or of devices and and interfaces. And then we are just concerning ourselves with the experience of using those products and how we can make that better. But it seems like This is a really truncated way of thinking about our agency as designers is just to think of humans, first of all, as as users, and then also to only think of the things that we're designing as these digital products or interfaces for these silicon and aluminum products that are proliferating around the world. What if 
what we are designing is actual social systems and the ways that we communicate with each other within a social, economic, and political context. I think certainly Facebook engineers have realized that but they maybe didn't notice that that's what they were doing at the beginning. I have to interject a very important segue. I think as we're talking about emergent intelligence within everything, right? Mm. We have to talk about nested systems. Right. So that term that I probably haven't brought up yet is holobiont, which refers to the nested systems that make up Um, For example, a human body. So if we're thinking about the microbiome, we're also going into a smaller scale as well to the biochemical pathways that are enabling human consciousness or going smaller to the molecular scale and smaller to the quantum scale and then shooting back out to the universal scale, right out to the edges of the universe. What is what is manifesting in this universe that is making this kind of life possible? It seems way out of the realm of, of some sort of random chance encounter that this could be possible. And the only way to conceive of resolving that kind of fine-tuned intelligence is to say that there's an infinite number of universes that have (laughs) helped to bring about this chance encounter of the right combination of all these different forces and conditions to bring about this kind of life. That seems (laughs) way out of the realm of any statistical possibility that we can consider. But I guess when you're thinking of scales of 13.4 13.4 billion years. Well, I don't know. Is anything and possible? Trillions of, <laughs> yeah. trillions of worlds and right, stars. Right, right. The statistics start becoming plausible <laughs> at some point. <laughs> right, right. Maybe, but um, yeah. So what is a holobiont? So How a does holobiont, that work? Right. So those are the nested systems that, that make up the complexity of a living system. And so it's not that there's just one entity, there's one human being is composed of many different entities that can include its own DNA structures and, and other foreign bodies that are all working in cooperation and symbiosis to be able to create this life. And in that way, we can maybe even meditate on I have a feeling that I am one thing. But as with any of our perceptions, they are just data that we are processing to essentially tell ourselves a story about how we got here and what we are and what we're here to do. Right. But those stories may not actually match up with reality in the same way that we thought that the sun was revolving around the earth because that's the way we were perceiving it. But Mm -hmm. you can just take a look at some stop motion photography on YouTube where they've locked on a star field and then you're actually watching the earth rotate in a relationship to that star field rather than what we don't perceive is that that passage of time and the ability to perceive that 
we're not watching a sunrise or watching a sunset. We're, according to Bucky, our actual orientation to the sun is that we're actually seeing an eclipse of mm. the sun as the sun is setting. So it's sun eclipse rather than, mm. than a sunset. Right. That makes sense. So, okay, if I may, um, another example of a holobion, just to get it back mm. into design yes, for right. a second, yeah. would be the nested systems of when I text message you, I, first of all, am holding this thing of glass, steel, and silicone that Mm -hmm. has been designed. It has a battery. It's got chemistry. It has software in a layer that I'm interacting with. And then I create this text message and I send it to you. And it's going over a network that has towers and wires and it sends electricity and it comes back to you. And as your eyes process that data then you're also, um, your brain has to make meaning of it. You have to utilize the systems in your brain that understand the text and that convert it into words. And then you might construe my emotion. Um, There are so many systems involved and let's not forget that that iPhone wouldn't exist if there was not a company called Apple who had a profit margin (laughs) and have to stay in business. And they didn't fail back in the 80s, but they actually, in this universe, they didn't, they did, succeed and go to take over a large portion of the market. And that's why I own one. And that's why I'm not owning, you know, a a rotary phone, right? Right. Because those things, and so it's those interconnections of systems. And maybe the fact that that idea I shared with you is so sticky or noteworthy that you decide to copy it and share it with a friend and you post it on Facebook. And now a hundred people saw it. And these are all nested systems. And if that idea is dangerous enough that idea might actually like influence a relationship. It might cause people to have an argument or to come together around an idea. Um, and it can affect reality. <laughs> right. In a sense. And it's because I had this piece of glass and steel in my hand that somebody was crazy enough to dream up. Yeah. But it took all of these different disciplines, all of these different systems from the typography to the technology that makes the screen and all these things come together in a way that creates something that emerges mm-hmm. uh, from that. And that emergence might be um, something social, right? Like social media. Yeah. What we want to be careful about is probably not to imbue that kind of process as as an organism in the way that a holobiont might be. So what I guess I'm talking to is nested systems. And what you're talking about is something far beyond that, which is when nested systems become a larger whole, the holobiont, right? Right. And there's living and emergent properties in that organism that we are trying to explain. But I think what you're talking about when we're relating those technologies and those devices to that holobiont is we can talk about that as biomimetic because it's imitating or copying what we've experienced through our being human and these ways of connecting and communicating with each other. So we're using technology to amplify our innate abilities and discovering that oh, well, maybe this physical world has some similar properties that we're tapping into, but there's some things that are mechanical, some things that are biological, and 
maybe, you know, there isn't a hard line between a holobiont and a biomimetic kind of technology environment. We're actually blurring the line between those two worlds in the same way that, well, what are we? <laughs> we're, mm-hmm. we're molecules that have figured out how to form into certain kinds of configurations and proteins and become a kind of biochemical form that has agency and cognition. Well, what is that then? Mm-hmm. So it, it just raises so many questions about, well, you know, what is technology? And what we have failed to recognize is that we keep on relating life to the most complex thing that human beings have ever invented, rather than recognizing that as human beings, we are just trying to replicate in the most crude forms the the kinds of processes that are already happening at the biological level and the technology that is represented by all of these nested systems is just way beyond what we've been able to comprehend and we are only at a very very nascent stage of trying to understand what this all means so in effect we are just babies (laughs) in trying to understand what is going on and we're only at that point where we're just starting to move our limbs and and trying to figure out how we make sounds with these oral orifices (laughs) that happen to have all these other capabilities of being able to create language and signal to other humans that we have needs (laughs) and yes (laughs) so there's these systems of communication and relationship building complex social systems that we are really fumbling around with right now and we only Mm -hmm. think that there are only two ways of thinking about these things and it's actually a false dichotomy and there's way more ways of thinking about things that allow us to have greater agency as people who are tool makers to reconfigure our environments in ways that could support a completely different way of relating to each other. That, to me, is the final frontier. Hey, everyone. This is Josh from the Language of Creativity podcast. Thanks for listening to part one of Stephen Bow's episode with your host, Stephen Levitt. Check out our feed for part two of the episode. To learn more about Stephen Bow's work, check out builderscollective.com. As always, you can find everything we talked about in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more from the language of creativity, check out Scott Thrift's episode to see how he went from being a successful filmmaker to making one-of-a-kind clocks that redefine the way we see time. Thanks again for supporting the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you can be updated about any future releases. The music in this episode was produced by Chef. And this is the Language of Creativity podcast.